0: Well, this morning we're beginning a a new 12 week sermon series, and it engages the study of apologetics. So, apologetics is a field within Christianity that focuses on the intellectual defense of the Christian faith. The goal of this time is to help us, as followers of Jesus Christ, have answers, have understanding of some of the difficult questions. That might be posed to us and so to kind of uh, to outline our time um, to give us structure we're going to be using um, a book you probably can't read any of that but that's okay that's just what the the cover of the book looks like Um, it was it won the Christianity Today 2020 uh, book award for evangelism and apologetics and it's called Confronting Christianity 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion And the author is uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. And so each week over these 12 weeks, I or Michael um, will look at one of those 12 questions and attempt to provide plausible responses. So this week, we're going to be addressing the first question, which says, aren't we better off without religion? The first question that is posed, aren't we better off without religion? And I think this is a very natural place to begin an investigation of the faith. Can we satisfactorily say that religion broadly, and Christianity in particular, is a net positive for ourselves and the world? You have the rise of the new atheism led by its quote-unquote four horsemen. And the goal of the new atheist movement was to undermine the attraction of Christianity, religion broadly, but much specifically Christianity in the Western world. And if you've never heard of the new atheist movement, um, it began around 2006. And its focus was that views like faith and religion shouldn't just be tolerated. Uh, That was a big separation from kind of previous atheist movements is they didn't want to just tolerate Christianity and religion, but that they felt that those worldviews should be criticized, countered, examined and challenged by rational arguments, and especially when the influence of religion had a strong influence on broader society and things like education and politics. Now, you may have heard uh, some of these names before. The four horsemen um, are Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris, and there's a number of others who have joined their ranks, but the movement really began with those four. Dawkins wrote a book in 2006, and he called it The God Delusion. What he argues is that, in his mind, the evidence is overwhelming, it's overwhelmingly against religion, that those who believe in such superstition are delusional, hence the title. This was followed up in the next year with the release of the book by Christopher Hitchens, titled God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. You can probably see where he went with that book. Through these arguments, the new atheist movement claimed the moral high ground. They said that faith was detrimental to moral development and the way to truly improve society, to truly improve ourselves as people, was through enlightenment. That was the answer that they argued for. Now regardless of whether we agree with their sentiment or not, I think this is an important question for us to ask especially in this generation. In America, we're seeing a growth, a rise in the quote-unquote nuns, those who hold to an atheistic worldview or no religion at all. 2016, college freshmen were surveyed nationwide and found that 30.9% of them were labeled as non-religious. That was a 10% rise over a decade. From 2006 to 2016, it rose from... 20% to 30%, basically. 16% of respondents marked none for their religious affiliation, basically considering the question of religion as irrelevant to their everyday lives. 8.5% labeled themselves as agnostic. Now, an agnostic is someone who lacks the knowledge of the divine. Uh, That's actually the word agnostic, what it means. A, without gnosis. It's the Greek word for knowledge, so without knowledge. They might say that they believe a higher power exists, but they don't know enough about that divine being or how to know which religion is right. And then lastly, 6.4% of college freshmen marked that they were atheists, that they did not believe that God existed at all. So the question of whether or not we're better off without religion is important to address in the time that we live, especially when we're shaped by the entertainment media around us, right? Take the Hulu series, The Handmaid's Tale. It tells of a community in New England following a second American Civil War, and this community is ru- ruled by a pseudo-Christian sect called the Sons of Jacob. The rhetoric of the show of the Sons of Jacob, is, it's clear misogyny in, in the show, um, which is propagated to something that appears to resemble, a semblance of Christianity. And it's created another platform to cry out about the abuses of religion, that if you take religion to its logical conclusions, it ends up to be something like The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it's no wonder, right, that after the controversial Dobbs decision, it was common. I saw many people posting on social media that, you know, we're seeing The Handmaid's Tale take place in our lifetimes. That's what was argued. They would argue we'd be better off without religion. Now, before I address the opening question, I want to pause and look at some of the vitriol of responses from the new atheists, or those that try to equate dystopian fiction with real-life faith. Why is it that there is such outrage? In fairness to their positions, to those who oppose Christianity or religion more broadly, we really haven't done ourselves any favors in the last few years, decades, you could argue centuries, when it's come to the court of public opinion. I I think we as a church need to, maybe not us as a specific church, but as part of the universal, the global church, need to accept some of the blame for this mess that we find ourselves in. When someone with respectability like Christopher Hitchens says that religion is toxic, we shouldn't just be dismissive. Right? ignoring his argument. What does he know? Too often the response of Christians has been to quote John 15, 18 to 19, saying, you know, Jesus said this was going to happen. In the passage, Jesus is with the disciples. He says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right? It's easy. To use and i've seen this used as a crutch that jesus said this would happen he said the world would hate us right, passages like that are not meant to provide a confirmation that you know we must be doing something right if folks hate us it's possible that you're being challenged that you're being criticized by the court of public opinion because of your love for jesus there's that is always a possibility but too often i've seen it used as an excuse for behaving like a jerk the question is, does the world hate us because we're living these countercultural lives in pursuit of the way of Jesus? M- maybe, or is it because of something else? Unfortunately, we've entrenched ourselves in the culture wars. We've platformed for self-seeking policies and governmental affairs. You could point to hundreds of examples of horrific abuse in both the Catholic and Protestant churches. What about the church's complicit role in our national sins of slavery and segregation? I'm going to give some counter-arguments in a few minutes, but I want to make sure that we're not ignoring the travesties that those who have represented the mantle of Jesus Christ have committed against others. I mean, let me give you just one more example. Mahatma Gandhi famously said this, quote, "'I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians.'" Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Skajitani shared a story in the Holy Post a few weeks ago about Gandhi, and according to him, there was a time that Gandhi was intrigued by Christianity, like he had considered becoming a follower of Jesus. But he was told that in order to really be a Christian, he had to wear shoes. He had to dress a certain way, which was different from the garments that he normally wore. I read another report that there was a church that he attempted to visit, in, that Gandhi attempted to visit in Calcutta, but when he got there, he was told he couldn't enter because this church was only for high caste Indians and whites. From these experiences, Gandhi jettisoned any desire to pursue the Christian faith. I mean, what a travesty that is. It's oftentimes not true faith that is impeding people from accessing the gospel but human-created boundaries that end up turning people away. I mean, in some ways, Hitchens' subtitle for his book is appropriate, How Religion Poisons Everything. I mean, there's so many examples that you could point to which support his claim, and so I think it's important for the church to acknowledge, recognize, and confess these offenses. But... These are not the totality of faith. Right? We shouldn't de- deny the abuses of the church, but we also shouldn't throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. You can point to countless examples where the church has acted as the conscience or acted as the hope of society. So to answer the initial question that Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin posed, aren't we better off with re- without religion? I think we have to confidently answer with a resounding no. Religion is beneficial to us individually. Tyler Vanderweil and John Seneff published an article in USA Today in 2016 titled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. The article begins with this introduction, quote, If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans, at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? The article describes VanderWheel's work as a Harvard researcher and the connection of health and religion. The article argues that this miracle elixir is religion, specifically church attendance, which they, upon studying, were found church attendance is able to increase happiness, reduce mortality by 20 to 30 percent over a 15-year period. There seems to be clear findings of mental and physical physical benefits to regular religious participation now why is that i mean one hypothesis one suggestion is that religion fosters relationships and good relationships with family or friends or community helps to keep us happier and healthier uh, it's surely, it's a correlation, it's not necessarily a causation, but as our society becomes more secularized, becomes less religious, I don't think it's an accident that we're dealing with an epidemic of loneliness. Religion is a remedy to the loneliness that many Americans feel. Now, it, th- This isn't, you know, what I'm arguing today is not necessarily a, whether Christianity is true or not, but is it beneficial We'll get to some of those truth claims in a couple of weeks. But beyond just the individual benefits of religion, the church has played an integral role in shaping the, the conscience of the Western world. Uh, one person said it this way, quote, Christianity has been intricately intertwined with the history and formation of Western society. Throughout its long history, the church has been a major source of social services like schooling and medical care. Again, university, Hospitals invented by the church. It's been an inspiration for art, culture, and philosophy, and an influential player in politics and religion. You know, just to give an example of politics, right? The, the um, Federalist Papers, there are a lot of them. And the, the, I don't believe that the, that the nation was founded as a Christian nation, but that Judeo Christian worldview sure shaped our understanding of our three-party system, or not three-party, but three-branch, uh, um, thank you, three-branch system. Right? It was a recognition of the depravity of humanity that left unchecked to its own accord. We didn't want another monarchy, another you know, would-be king or queen to become tyrant, and so the checks and balances, that flows out of this Judeo-Christian ethic. It's difficult to overstate the contribution that Christian faith has had upon our society. This past week, I've been reading an, a book by Andy Crouch, called The Life We're Looking For. And it's about our world of technology. It's actually a very fascinating book, uh, how to focus on relationships in the midst of it. But Andy Crouch spent some time in the book writing about the culture of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was a brutal society, just as an example that he gave. Their culture, they didn't have the technology of abortion on demand like we do, but they were no less barbaric. If a family had a baby that had a physical limitation or that they just didn't want, it was common practice, common to practice something called exposure, where they would take the baby to the outskirts of the town and just leave it there. And you know, every now and then you might hear news stories of a parent leaving a child in a dumpster. That's kind of what exposure was like. It was a very commonplace in the Roman Empire. But it was the practice of Christians conscience of Christians in the Roman Empire was to rescue those children, right? The, the early church was devotedly pro-life at great cost to themselves. They would use their resources to adopt these children, provide life and opportunity for them when their culture had condemned them to death. There's a letter written in the early second century, so we're talking about 100 years removed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it describes the lives of Christians, and this is from one of the earliest Christian apologetics. It's called The Letter to Diognetus. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's a wonderful picture of what Christianity, what the church ought to look like. It says this. Again, this is about 120-140 A.D. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe. They they kind of share, uh, they don't have their own particular language or customs. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners as citizens they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth is land of strangers they marry as do all others they beget children but they do not destroy their offspring they have a common table but not a common bed they are in the flesh but they do not live after the flesh They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. I mean, imagine if that could be said about the church in our generation. I mean, it would make any attempt to see the Christian faith as toxic and make that laughable. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. That's a faith that I think is good for the world. So to begin to wrap up, I want to give you, this is kind of like the take-home portion, if you will, there are seven biblical principles for good that Rebecca McLaughlin puts forth in her book. And each of these provide examples of the benefit that can be received by observing the Christian faith. So I'll go through these pretty quickly. So the first is this. It really is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, taken right. That's right out of Acts chapter 20, verse 35. One researcher, researcher said this, quote, actively caring for others often yields greater physical and psychological benefits than being cared for. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who is not a Christian himself, said this about the generosity of Christians. He said, quote, Surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer-lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and of their blood. And the Bible was saying that a long time ago. Second is this, the love of money disappoints. Jesus tells us about the sly trappings of wealth in the scripture. We have social adages that say things like money can't buy happiness, but the Bible has been saying it for generations. If you look at the World Happiness Report of 2018, the income per capita of America, so basically our overall income, has more than doubled since 1972, what is that, like 46 years. But happiness, over that time, where subjective well-being has remained constant or even declined, we've got a lot more money but we're not any happier. There's no causational relationship between money and greater fulfillment with life. Now, again, the, the asterisk to that is, is there is a point in time um, where if you, if you are poor, if you're economically disadvantaged, an increase of money um, will increase happiness but then you hit a point that it, it, doesn't, it, it shows no measurable effect. I, I, and I want to say that point is like $70,000. We're not talking like two hundred fifty dollars The Bible is instructive to us, and it needs to be instructive to us in this generation. Uh, that, that whole uh, Andy Crouch book, The Life We're Looking For, kind of what he, the phil philosophy, the worldview that he puts the church up against is mammon, right? Jesus' word for wealth, capitalism, you could argue, as well. So there you go, the love of money disappoints. Third is this, work works when it's a calling. Instead of just thinking about jobs, and we do this from time to time. Uh, We have this segment for this this time tomorrow, which it's been a while since we did it, should do it again. But instead of just thinking about our jobs, the Bible calls us to vocations. A vocation is a word that means calling. And your vocation can be anything from being a stay-at-home parent to a software engineer to the person who's flipping burgers at McDonald's. All those things can be vocations. When we work with purpose, we're working not just for the dollar. A, a stay-at-home parent does not usually receive income for being a stay-at-home parent, but yet that is a high calling to have. When we pursue, not just because of what we get paid or what our salary is, it can be build meaning into our lives. Again, this is what the Bible, this is what the Bible teaches about. Fourth, we really can be happy in all circumstances. Now, I would personally correct McLaughlin's point, I think it's semantics, but by restating it, that we can be joyful in all circumstances. Both Michael, who preaches here once a month, and myself have talked about this over the last couple of months. We might think of Paul's contentment at the end of Philippians. He says he's learned to be content in all situations, Philippians 4, 12 to 13. And it's in many regards, he was in rough shape when he wrote that but it didn't detract from the joy that he experienced from the Lord. Daniel Gilbert describing our, he describes our quote, psychological immune system, which can synthesize happiness. In some ways, positive thoughts beget more positive thoughts and experiences. And this isn't unique to Christianity. All world religions, in some manner, focus on contentment, focus on inner peace, happiness, joy. We call it different things. So for that matter, all religions are beneficial to us as human beings. You know, we'll get to some of the exclusivity, uh, exclusive claims of Christianity over other faith systems in a few weeks. Again, that's not what I'm addressing this morning. Is religion beneficial? Fifth, gratitude is good for us. This follows closely uh, on the one before. Gratitude begets gratitude. Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, says that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. Not give thanks in good circumstances, but to give thanks in all circumstances. Once again, when Paul's writing this, he's writing while he is in prison in Rome. It's a place of suffering. And there's plenty of conventional wisdom that supports this, these biblical claims, right? Research benefits on, you know, focusing on gratitude, keeping a gratitude journal. You know, at the end of the day, think what are, you know, three things that you're grateful for gratitude's good for us. Sixth is this. This is a tough one, because I think it flies against how we, the way we want to live, but self-control and perseverance help us thrive. Jonathan Haidt, I already cited him once, but to cite him again, he has a book. uh, Man, it was one of the most influential books that I've read in the last couple of years. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind, and in it he's given ample evidence of how we are infantizing our society, by trying to remove all semblance of risk and pain from our regular struggles of life. We're leaving ourselves and the next generation unprepared to deal with suffering. We don't know how to per- persevere anymore. We don't know how to rein in our emotions, our, our desires. Jesus said this in a different way. He said, Matthew seven fourteen that for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We, we often envision right the wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the one that leads to righteousness. But I had a, a good friend of mine in seminary when he, he, I heard him preach on this and I think it was brilliant. what he, he thinks what Jesus is saying here is you have the masses walking one direction. That's the wide path. The narrow path is the one who turns around and walks against the flow. The one who is willing to, to not just go kind of the way of, of the culture, but is willing to, to follow Jesus in times that are hard, right? And, and he, you know, I was, I was working with college students, and he um, uh, displayed this, right? He had people walking in a line and someone turning around walking in the opposite direction. His instructions were, like, don't get out of their way. Like, he, you know, he wasn't saying, like, cross-check them, but it was difficult for them to try to navigate as they're, you know, getting bumped in their shoulders and whatnot, it forms us. Or James, who told us to encounter our trials with joy because suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance has the effect of bringing maturity, bringing completeness to our lives. Self-control and perseverance help us thrive. And seven is this, foundation, or forgiveness is foundational. When Peter approaches Jesus, he's trying to figure out what are these limits of, of forgiveness, thinking he's he's thinking he's being pretty generous. How, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? I mean, you know, ha, have we forgiven someone seven times? By then, we're probably patients running out. Is that enough? Jesus says, try 77 times. Okay, I don't think that's meant to be understood literally, but more hyperbolically. Jesus is encouraging us to live a life of forgiveness, because it's a salve to our soul. Lewis Smedes put it this way, he said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. Forgiveness is helpful to us, helpful for society. Now, most Christians probably look at that list of seven habits and think, all right, like there's nothing earth-shattering in them. They're basic common-sense elements of the faith, If you grew up in the church, these are the things that you've heard about, learned about from a young age at Sunday school. But just because we've heard about them regularly doesn't not mean that we practice them like we should. But the core foundations of well-being that flow out of the faith are there. And granted, this, this message this morning is not meant to be a comprehensive theological examination. We haven't looked at the benefits of salvation, of atonement, and all of that. But the purpose of this exercise was to answer the question, are we better off without religion? And I think the clear answer is no, we're not. It's good for us. It's good for the world. You can find clear examples of toxic faith or places with those who have had influence, abused their authority. But those negative examples do not invalidate the good that has been done in the world by the name of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ lived with such a po- posture. He lived in such a way that if the church was more faithful in modeling it, the very act of asking that question of, "Are we better off without religion?" would seem ridiculous. It seemed ludicrous. I don't know may- maybe you're here today and you're trying to explore the Christian faith. Maybe you're weighing those pros and cons, testing Christianity, seeing if it's actually good. I think the proof is there if we look for it. You can find places where people following the example of Jesus have given of themselves for the good of their neighbor. Ways that are self-sacrificing, that are counterintuitive. And so I'd ask as we go through these 12 weeks that you would continue to track with us because we're going to ask some really difficult questions. And Michael and I are going to try to give answers and there might be times where we just we, we fail at that, you know, that you're just not satisfied with that answer and that's okay. But they're important, difficult questions to ask. But maybe you're here and this series on apologetics doesn't feel super relevant. Maybe you already believe the goodness, you already believe the truthfulness of Christianity. But let this be an opportunity to listen to the questions. Like really listen to why they're being asked. The only reason Christopher Hitchens would say that religion poisons everything is because he's probably lived examples or seen examples where religion has poisoned things. And then in response, to respond with compassion, respond with empathy. Maybe we need to challenge ourselves to be a little bit more selfless, to be more generous, to forgive instead of holding a grudge. Maybe we have kind of gone off that wide path and we need to refocus on that narrow path that Jesus has set before us because it's better for our character and it's good for the world. And so as we Prepare to leave this place as we prepare to go home. I've got a few questions for us. Uh, have you the first is this: Have you engaged and I'm calling it anti-Christian, anti-religious arguments like the new atheism, why or why not? Again, yeah, I think there are some Christians that I don't know if it's out of fear or because it's like, well, that doesn't apply to me, but th- I think there's important nuggets. Right? When, when we connect with a Sam Harris or a Christopher Hitchens and read their stuff. It's important. It helps strengthen us, right? It's kind of like, you know, uh, going to the gym, which, which you can tell I don't do, you know. when you When you lift weights, you're tearing those muscles. You're challenging them so that they grow back stronger, and again, I think that it's important to see what people who are outside of the faith have to say to challenge us. Second is this. How would you articulate the personal benefit you receive from your practice of Christianity, right? I, I'm advocating, I'm suggesting this morning that religion, Christianity is good for us. Where have you seen that in your life? And the last is this, of those seven biblical principles for good that Rebecca McLaughlin stated, which of them do you see as the greatest opportunity to grow in your Christian character? Initially I wrote that as like, which is the one that you're, you know, you least are least likely to follow, but framing in terms of opportunity I think is better. So those are those questions. I'll post them on Facebook and the website. Uh, Let me pray, um, and then we're basically going to be done here. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the saints over um, many millennia who have uh, walked with you. Walked with you when times were good and walked with you when times were difficult and have preserved for us not just the word but also church history and, and examples upon examples of places where, when we're f- truly following after you, not some image of you that we've created that's easy for us to l- live, but when we are f- really following after you, that you change us, That that we are hope, th- that the church is the hope of the world, when it's functioning the way that it ought to. Help us to be your people and to be of the church, that when folks see and experience Jesus, the name of Jesus, that they're not put off like Gandhi, or that they don't come to you and are put off by us, but that we would lead people into fellowship with you, that they might see your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.